Thank you, Josh and Laura. Excellent job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse number 16. I will go ahead and apologize. I got this ridiculous need to cough in the back of my throat. I may actually wake some of you up about midway through the sermon, so if I cough, I'm sorry. The Christian faith rests firmly on the correct answer to the question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15. Who do you say that I am? You probably heard liberal college professors and theologians say, Jesus never claimed to be God. It was his disciples that made that claim. The only problem with that is it's not true. It's wrong. Jesus did emphatically state that he was God. Even in our day, the Jehovah Witness and Mormons hold Jesus in high esteem, even to the point that they claim to believe in him, but they deny that he is God. There are others in our world that believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher, an example, but they do not believe that he is God. But C.S. Lewis firmly shut that door on that option in his often quoted statement. He wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that door open to us. He did not intend to. So everyone has to decide, is Jesus crazy or is he really God? And that decision will affect how you live the rest of your life and even more importantly, it will determine where you will spend eternity. Earlier in chapter 5, Jesus healed the lame man on the Sabbath in verses 8 and 9. And the religious leaders, rather than rejoice, are angry. They're angry because the Sabbath has been violated. As we observed in that previous sermon, the religious leaders were not concerned about the lame man. They did not even acknowledge that he had been healed, let alone rejoice over it. Their only concern is for the rules, their rules. And the fact that they had been broken concerning the Sabbath. After determining that it was Jesus who 
heal the man, the religious leaders confront Jesus about violating the Sabbath. Now, there were several options open to Jesus. Jesus could have pointed out that they were in error about their interpretation of the Sabbath, as he did at other times. He could have said, well, it's always right to do good on the Sabbath. But instead, he replies in verse number 17 that he was only doing what the Father was doing. But Jesus answered them, my Father has been working until now, and I have been working. The confrontation with the religious leaders sets the stage for Jesus to make some of the strongest statements about his deity in all of the Bible. In verses 17 through verses 47, he makes some very strong statements. J.C. Riles wrote many years ago, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this text. I want you to notice four things that Jesus claims. First of all, Jesus claims that he is the Son of God. Verse number 17. Jesus calls God my Father. He was claiming God was his Father in a very special sense. In Matthew chapter 5, from verse 19 to verse 26, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God nine times. For not only is God the Father, God is His Father. Today we more or less take it for granted that God is to be spoken of as the Father. But it has not always been that way and certainly was not that way in the first century. Jews would sometimes refer to God as the Father, but they usually would add something like in heaven in order to make it clear that they're not being too familiar. But when Jesus uses the term, my father, it was a claim to a special intimacy and the Jews recognized it as such. Jesus is claiming a relationship with the father, which cannot be applied to any other being in the universe. He is the only begotten son of God. And then Jesus defends his actions by pointing out that he is merely imitating his father and his actions. Jesus states that God's creative and sustaining work upon which the world depends has never ceased, nor will it. He says, my father is working and I am working too. Second, Jesus claims equality with the Father. Verse 18, John declares, Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, the religious leaders immediately grasp what Jesus is saying. 
he is stating that he is equal with God. The religious leaders did not reject Jesus because they did not understand him. They did not understand who he claimed to be. They understood perfectly who he said he was, and they rejected him because of those claims. The religious leaders, in fact, changed the charge they brought against Jesus from breaking the Sabbath to that of blasphemy because Jesus claimed to be God. Now, those liberal theologians that I mentioned who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God have to skip right over passages like that that plainly say that Jesus did claim to be God. Now, notice that John does not tell us that from this point on, the Jewish authorities are trying to kill Jesus. It says, for this reason, the Jews were trying even harder to kill him. The authorities had already determined that he must be put to death. This incident only provided them with added incentive for doing it as soon as possible. When the religious leaders accused Jesus of making himself equal with God, instead of denying it in horror, Jesus affirms it emphatically by stating in verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Now, Jesus prefaces this claim with the phrase, if you have a King James Version, verily, verily, or the English Standard Version has truly, truly, but whether it's most assuredly or truly, truly, or verily, very, the assertion is that this is something that is true without the possibility of being contradicted. In fact, this phrase is used three times in our text, in verse 19 and verse 24 and 25. He uses the words most assuredly, verily, verily, or truly, truly. The first statement that Jesus makes is an assertion that everything that the God the Father does, he does. And everything he does is also done by the Father. The only possible conclusion is not lost on these religious leaders, and it is that God that Jesus is claiming to be God. And then Jesus turns their accusations on their head. Their accusations, well, how can you dare to presume to act and speak as if you were God? And Jesus turns that that accusation around and he says, if I am God... How is it possible for me to act and speak in any other way than that of God? In verse 20, Jesus declares how the Son can do whatever the Father does, saying, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does and will show him greater works than these that you may marvel The implications of this verse are very startling. 
they reveal a different perspective on God's redeeming love than what we're used to considering. John MacArthur says this about that verse. He says, it might shake you up to hear this, but at the heart of God's redeeming work is not God's love for you. Now, hang on for a minute. Is not God's love for you, not God's love for me, not God's love for the world, not God's love for sinners. At the heart of redemption is the Father's love of the Son and the Son's love for the Father. You might say, didn't Jesus die because he loved us in a secondary sense? But in the primary sense, Jesus died because he loved the Father. Didn't the Father send Jesus to the cross because he loved us? In a secondary sense, in the primary sense, he sent the Son to the cross because he loved the Son. You say, how can I understand that? You understand it this way, that the whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of the world, the universe, human history, is so that God the Father can collect a bride to give to his Son. A bride that is an expression of his love. The father will give to the son a redeemed humanity. Collected one day in heaven forever and ever and ever to praise and serve and glorify the son. And it will always be an everlasting expression of the father's love. I'll give you something to think about this afternoon. Third, Jesus claims power to give life. Under this, there are two points that are not in your outline. Beyond his claim that he is equal to the Father, he first of all claims that he is the giver of physical life. Verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Jewish rabbis had a saying, Three keys are given into the hand of God that are not given to any of his agents, namely that of rain, Deuteronomy 28, 12, that of the womb, Genesis 30, 22, and that of raising the dead, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 13. Thus, Jesus is claiming that he would exercise a function that the Jews universally hell that belonged to God alone. The Old Testament clearly teaches that only God could give life and raise the dead to new life. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39, we read, Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. 1 Samuel 2, 6 states, And the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. So the ability to give life is the prerogative of deity. Consequently, when Jesus claims to be able to give life, he is clearly claiming to be God. 
But not only is he the giver of physical life, he is the giver of spiritual life. Verses 24 through 26. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Whereas the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in him. Verse 24 contains words of great peace and assurance because it speaks of everlasting life. But it speaks of everlasting life as a present possession. Salvation is not just something we can have in the future. It is something that we can have now. Romans chapter 10 verse 17, the apostle Paul states that one must hear and believe. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Earlier in chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10, the apostle wrote, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In verse 24 of our text, Jesus says, The person who believes has eternal life. The tense of the verbs indicate that when a person enters into this process, it remains theirs forever. A believer need not be uncertain about whether or not they have eternal life. For as John says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, These things I have written to you, that you believe in the name of the Son of the God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Salvation is something that we know we possess. Some believe, however, to be saved means to be able to pinpoint the exact moment of salvation. For some, that is possible, and for others, it is not. It is not possible for everyone. I like what the great old preacher G. Campbell Morgan wrote on that subject. Years ago, he was preaching in Tennessee, and during his sermon, he stated, By no no means can every man remember the time when he was born again. At the end of the sermon, someone challenged that statement. And Morgan turned to them and asked the question, Are you alive? The man replied, Of course I am. Morgan then asked, do you remember when you were born? The man said, no, but I know I'm living. Morgan replied, exactly. Some Christians may not remember the exact moment of their new birth, but they are spiritually alive and they know it. And that's what counts. You can know you have eternal life. Jesus claims power to give life both physically and spiritually and fourth and finally Jesus claims the authority to judge verse 22 says for the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son 
that all should honor the Son as they, they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You may recall that in John chapter 3 and verse 17, it was stated that Jesus came not to condemn the world. And some people see then what we have here as a contradiction. The point of that verse in John chapter 3 was that Jesus came to save a world that was already condemned. In verse 27 through 30, Jesus continues with the theme of judgment, saying that God the Father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of God. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. I think there are three crystal clear facts that these verses tell us about eternity. First of all, there is definitely life after death. Jesus is teaching that physical death is not the end of existence. Life here on earth is not the complete span for man. Beyond this life is another different existence which one cannot avoid. Secondly, we note that everyone is affected by this. Simply in verse 28, it says all, all who are in their graves, meaning all without exception. And third, all mankind will fall into two and only two categories. Death is not the end. All will stand before God with judgment unto life for those who have a personal relationship with Christ and judgment unto condemnation for those who do not. When some who have yet to place their trust in Christ hear of this judgment, they say things like, I refuse to believe that. I don't believe a God of love would condemn anyone. Others state that all they ask of God is justice. I pity the person who's satisfied with justice when grace is available. Christian writer that I referred to earlier, C.S. Lewis, wrote a great series of books entitled The Chronicles of Narnia. And the last book in that series is called The Last Battle. He describes rather creatively what our hope is and what eternity will be like. At the end of Lewis's book, The, great, the Last Battle, Aslan, the, the lion, who is the representative character of Christ, tells Peter and Edmund and Lucy there has been a railroad accident and they are dead. Here's how the text goes. It says, and he, Aslan, spoke, and as he spoke, he no longer looked like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. As for us, the reader, 
This is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This life is only the cover and the title page, and our real life awaits beyond. By the authority of his voice, Jesus will call forth believers into a new life, a life which our existence on earth was merely the first beginning. It is clear from the text who Jesus claims to be. The two most important questions that we will ever answer are these. Is Jesus right about who he claims to be? And if he is right, what have we done about it? Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed when we think about the glories of heaven. And as good as life is here at times and as joyful as life can be sometimes here, it's nothing as compared with what you have designed for us in eternity. We have so much to be thankful for. We're thankful that our Lord and Savior has already done everything necessary for our salvation. That all we must do is to accept the payment he has made for our sins. And it is our prayer this morning that there is even one here this morning that has never come into a personal relationship with you. They've never recognized that they are a sinner repented of those sins and ask you to forgive them. Help them to realize that they can do that right here, right now. And they can leave this place knowing that eternity is a present possession. That they are a a citizen of heaven right now. And there is great security and peace and assurance in having that relationship with you. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. And we ask this morning that you just speak to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?